Monday, we're back with our Superman capes on. Tony and I are back and pounding the table. We've got a great episode for you guys this week. Earnings month is upon us. It's going to be a lot of interesting plays to see there in the coming weeks. Our first winner of the Pounder's thesis pick is going to be talked about pretty shortly here, and obviously a whole lot more. Exactly right, Pound Nation. Uh, we got a fire podcast coming your way. We'll jump right into it. we got the winner of the PTT fan thesis pick. ton of great submissions, so it's pretty tough just to pick one. Uh, For those of you who do not follow us on Twitter, do so immediately. Each week we'll be taking submissions for that fan thesis pick. It's on new we're trying out, basically crowdsourcing some picks. Tony and I will pick our favorite one. Of course, you have to have a thesis behind it. No, just tossing out a random stock ticker symbol. So with the first pick of the inaugural PTT fan thesis, Sheikhtar with Overstock. So this is not the original Overstock. What he says is, I do not pound the table often. But Overstock, O-S-T-K-O, trades at a 50% discount than the traditional O-S-T-K, Overstock, ticker symbol. So I'll be in the preferred dividend issue stock with a small float. This is the most retail investor-friendly trade that I have ever seen. Why Overstock, Tony? Are, are they pulling a Wayfair? <laughs> you guys are going to have to Google that reference. But in, in all seriousness, why did you select that one? So I'm always looking for something on the market that's providing a new way to look at how to buy assets, how to value assets, how to trade assets. There was the tech boom in the 2000s. There was the cryptocurrency rise of ICOs and other, you know, things like that. And in 2017, I even took out like most of my trading money and started going into crypto. And now we've got SPACs. But this is something that's really, really cool and new. And this is the first time I've seen this on the market. So Overstock.com will pay the first of its kind digital voting series A1 preferred stock OSTKO dividend. Really interesting. So it's a step toward using the distributed ledger technology to measure share ownership. So basically that's blockchain technology um, being applied to stocks, which I think is just kind of revolutionary. And I was talking about this a few years ago, and I figured this is going to be how a lot of stocks start going towards their IPOs and start trading. The distributed ledger of the blockchain is a fantastic resource to allow this to thrive and grow. So the reason I picked this is because OSTKO, so this is the preferred uh, dividend issuing version of Overstock, the share should theoretically trade at a higher price than the traditional Overstock shares OSTK ticker symbol, because they have all the same rights as the traditional Overstock shares, but they have additional rights to dividends that are not paid to the traditional Overstock shares. So there's no reason in my mind that normal Overstock OSTK should be trading way higher than OSTKO. So I think there's a really interesting arbitrage opportunity here. And you kind of saw this a couple of years ago when Google did their split between GOOG, G-O-O-G, and G-O-O-G-L, between voting shares and non-voting shares. And there was a big gap in there for a little while. But that gap is you know, significantly closed. So you know, in an interesting way, you could short OSTK and long OSTKO because the prices should become parity over time. 
But otherwise, you could just long OSTKO. I think I'm actually going to start accumulating that because I've read a lot about overstock recently. It was a ridiculous buy at 250. Obviously, it's like pushing 50 now. So that's a 20x right there in a couple months. But you know, with this new distributed ledger dividend preferred stock, I think it's really interesting because no no one else is doing this. So I'm happy to jump on something just to see what's going to turn into. OSTKO is at about 33.75. Overstock right now is at 53.31. So there definitely does seem to be some opportunity there. Huge congrats to Sheikhtal, uh, the first inaugural winner of Pounding the Table thesis pick. We'll definitely be doing that every single week. But uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it, man. Obviously, earnings week's coming up. Netflix, massive, right? I mean, everyone predicted this shit was going to fly. Everyone's staying at home, Netflix, chilling, maybe a little bit more. But just when you're getting super excited, you think things are about to pop, they just go down and drop. So what the fuck happened there, man? Yeah, so I think it's a lot of psychological logic here. So you kind of look at things like Netflix that have done super well during this pandemic. Netflix basically doubled, added 25 million new subs, something insane. Like it was, it was a lot. And so even those great projections, they, they could be priced in at a point. And so I think that it's more of a psychological sentiment trade for earnings this time. So anything that's done really well during coronavirus, it's probably either going to stall or pull back a little bit because that has already been priced into the max. Like when the market dove in March, that's we dropped 40% in a matter of weeks. And that was like pricing in an asteroid hitting the left side of the earth. You know, that's the price is going to reflect what people think is going to happen in a few months. So maybe they think that things are going to get better and Netflix is going to stop being used as much. And so therefore it sold off a little bit and it was priced into the max value of the current time. People are looking at banks too, and everyone had really bad predictions on banks. And we said this last podcast that I thought they were going to do fine, and they did do fine. In fact, Goldman Sachs was up 6% in the morning of JP Morgan. All of them did pretty well. Even though they did get sold off, that was just a a big rotation into tech and then back into value. So it was like really interesting there to see that because the bad predictions here are already priced into the point. So my, my guess is that for the rest of the earnings, anything that people think is going to really do poorly should probably do well. Anything that people think is going to exceed expectations because it's going to do even better than everyone priced it in should probably stall or go down. So that's kind of how I'm going to be playing earnings. I think the majority of earnings will still rip. Honestly, people are way over impacting the impact of earnings here. It's just not going to be a big deal, in my opinion. There's so many other forces that are impacting the market. You've got you know COVID numbers coming out. You've got Fed stimulus. The EU is deciding to whether or not to, to do more leverage, allow leverage again on buying their stocks. And they're adding more to the coronavirus stimulus fund, which just came into my phone a second ago, $750 billion. So it's, it's really interesting stuff to see that these things that should really, really matter in a normal market just aren't. So I had a question here from Jimmy Boy, Sam Wise Glee. He said, thoughts on Tesla earnings and how it influenced the stock? I've, asked, I've been asked this question probably 50 times this week already. I'm long Tesla shares from 419 during the March crash. I'm not going to sell my shares, but you know, the Tesla earnings are always a wild card. You never know if it's going to do a stall to kill premiums and get the market makers some money back because they've been getting destroyed, or if it's going to rip 300, 400 points a week or two after like it has the last couple of times. So, I mean, I'm definitely not bearish on Tesla at all. In fact, like if it goes down, I know people will probably load up and get back into it. It's just such a great momentum mover. But the premiums on it are outlandish. In my opinion, if you're going to do premiums, you do spreads. And even uh, that's for me, I, I won't do that. I'm just going to hold my stock. Uh, if it dips, I'll probably buy more. If it rips, I'm going to be a happy man. Do you, do you see anything that happened in like Netflix where, you know, the obvious trend would be for it to to pop? Obviously, there's not necessarily that Corona impact and people staying at home necessarily. But 
you know, the whole entire car market has seen some sort of turbulence here. Tesla kind of is an outlier, of course, but mm-hmm. you don't see the similar thing happening with Netflix yeah. where it just drops down very quickly. So the thing with Tesla here is that I think if they're positive this quarter, I'm pretty sure they get added to the S&P 500, which means so many people can get in so many funds who have a mandate that they can only get into S&P 500 stocks, this and that will load the crap out of Tesla if they haven't already. When there probably will be more that are sitting on the sidelines that are more conservative and waiting for, you know, the actuality to come into reality. I don't really think it's going to have the same impact as Netflix earnings. You know, Tesla is the only automaker that has not had decreasing sales during this time. That's huge. And that's massive. I mean, everyone else, Honda, Toyota, Ford, they're all getting smacked around. So I think Tesla is, you know, it's my favorite stock since it was 80. It's still my favorite stock. So it's a winner. I know we've uh, talked a decent amount, of course, on the previous podcast about SPACs, right? So you mentioned that you're looking to go to SPACs as kind of this flight to safety, quote unquote. Now I'm doing the, the, the spirit fingers here. But going into the elections, obviously people are going to gold, going back into cash. Tony's going to SPACs. Talk to me a little bit about why here again. Yeah. So I think it's just one of those opportunities, again, like I was just saying about you know, OSTKO, it's something that you just haven't seen before. So these blank check companies are, are pretty new to the market and uh, not everyone's radar yet. I know Portnoy was in FMCI, made money on that. And that kind of brought it to a lot of people's attentions and even CNBC started talking about them a little bit. But I think that it's really interesting that it's based on a cash value that goes into that IPO, right? So they're always issued at $10 a share. And that's based off of how much money is in that blank check company. So the, the floor on those is $10 a share, which is really interesting because usually you're like, oh, well, my stock can go to zero. Well, it really can't for SPACs because there's a cash value behind them. Like they have 12 to 18 months, I believe, to do a deal, to do a merger that you know, brings a company public. So if they don't do a deal, it just dissolves and it's $10 a share and you're, you're chilling. But if they do a deal, most of the time, they're only going to do a deal if it looks like a good deal. And even if it's not a good deal in a couple of years, initially that, that hype's going to get them going. So I'm going to be loading into a lot of these SPACs because I'm not going to be as bullish going into the election, especially with the way the polls are. And trust me, I understand polls are flimsy and this and that, but it's a pretty big margin right now, Biden versus Trump. So it's like, I will take those odds as what they are just to be safe. I mean, I've already had a great year or two in the last two weeks. So what I'm going to be buying a lot of, and I started loading these already, and I'll continue to accumulate them as I'm selling my long-term auction positions. I'll be buying Feek, Flying Eagle. So it's the same guy who did DraftKings, a CCXX, and they have rumors to be going into Top Golf as their merger. IPOC and iBob, which I've talked about a couple of times, and that's ran by Chamath. He's the guy who took space. So that's one of my favorite investors too. So I, I would go and put my money with him if that makes sense. And LFAC. So I'm hearing some financial tech merger rumors there. So anything that's been doing payment processing, FinTech has been doing very, very well recently. So instead of going into cash and not making anything and, and who knows what's going to happen to inflation, you, you want to be in something that has the potential to explode. So a lot of SPACs don't really do their mergers before six to nine months, sometimes 12 months. Um, so these, a lot, some of these are relatively new. Some of these are a little older, but it's just going to be a matter of time, in my opinion, before the merger comes in and they do the deal and then the hype comes in. So I'd rather put my money in there to sit because who knows one day they could just explode. And if they don't explode, it's just going to hit that floor base of $10 a share. And it's basically cash. So that's my play. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Flying Eagles, so the same guys that did DraftKings. I, I own a ton of DraftKings. Massive news coming out that Illinois is going to be receiving a temporary operating permit 
So the launch is imminent. DraftKings has massive potential in my mind. So this is a an obvious pick. I know everyone comes to hear Tony talk, but uh, <laughs> hear me out on this one, guys. I, I truly believe in DraftKings, and here's why. They only have seven states that are allowed to bet online. So New Jersey, Indiana, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Colorado, West Virginia, and Iowa. So it's not just fantasy, which, you know, obviously the majority of states can do the daily fantasy sports, which is how it launched. But now they have seven states out of the 50 states that can actually now bet online. Illinois is going to be joining them and about 14 others are actually looking to to think about it. Everything that's happening with Corona, there's going to be so many reasons to to get in. They need it for tax purposes to start to recover. Uh, They're also getting into iGaming. They're only in three states right now with uh, Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and DraftKings is just absolutely dominant. I'm sure you've seen their their ads on TV. Uh, this is not an ad for them. This is purely my my guidance here. But I, I truly think that you know they own 75% of the market share right now for fantasy sports. And sports aren't even existing really. Any major sport, of course, you can go bet on Korean baseball. You can go bet on uh, <laughs> myself playing on on Warzone. Do not bet on me in, in Warzone. But there's just so much potential there. Another spec that I wanted to call out, obviously. So. That, that's my obby pick of, of the week here. Definitely with that Illinois news, I think it's going to pop. So check me next week. <laughs> we'll see if that works out, but uh, I'm going to inject myself there. So, and, that, uh, and that's how we, that's how we know that you are a degenerate sports gambler because your favorite pick is a sports gambling app. So there you go. Now we know who you are really. <laughs> the under 16 women's tennis in Cambodia has got to go. So let's, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll deviate off that a little bit. Obviously we love to pride ourselves that stonks only go up. Talk to me a little bit about this tech sell-off last week. We talked about in the beginning of the show, just the world was ending. We have months of great news. One day goes down. Everyone's thinking that the world's going to completely be demolished, right? How do you handle that, man? So like, what did you do? Was there any way that you managed that specifically? Did you know that it was coming back quickly? Things pop back up here on Monday, but you know, talk to me a little bit about what your thought process was with that. Were you scared? No, I mean, I don't really get scared, but I was definitely paying a lot more attention to the markets. You know, when markets going up and stuff, it's pretty easy to just like sit back, play some Fortnite and watch Netflix. I've got notifications on my stocks, like all, my, all everything I watch, you know, if it goes over a certain level, I get a ping. If it goes under a certain level, I get a ping. And when the market's running, you know, I've got like you know, 20, 30, 40 positions running at any time. Some are stocks, some are leaps, some are weekly options. And I'm always just watching what's moving or what's diving that day. I don't really care about what's just doing okay or not doing super great. But during this, I think a lot of that, tech sell-off had to do with the fact that it was the monthly options expiration date. So this really smart trader I know, it goes by High Yield 6 on Twitter. He posted, uh, so why was tech down last week? Monthly OPEX, massive OI open interest on call side on the big names. Notice how the two leaders, Amazon and Tesla, were pinned near 3000 and 1500 after Tuesday. And now comes Monday after and ripper time once again. Lesson, stay away from markets on monthly OPEX. So, you know, that was a fantastic comment by him. Really, really, really smart. And I think that's such a, a true statement. I go into these monthly OPEX weeks. So it's when stocks that don't have weekly options every week, they expire that week. And so they only have options for that month. And a lot of stocks do that. But you know, obviously, some stocks that we talk about a lot, most of the stocks we talk about every week here, um, they have weekly options. So that month is when a lot of different things expire. And there's a lot of pinning that goes on. So if the big boys are getting pinned, the market's not really going to move. And especially knowing that Amazon was basically just going down and hovering at 3000. Like he was saying, Tesla was up and down hovering at 1500 and a lot of other names, you know, Apple around 385, this and that. So I really didn't see it coming right then and there, but if I didn't see it come, I should have seen it coming because monthly OPEX, you know, that's probably my worst week out of the month 
every month that I trade. So lesson learned, don't do weeklies on option OPEX weeks. That's just a, a big key there. But regardless, I was in the situation. So this is how I dealt with it. Every week I go into the next week on a Friday, I'll plan for the next week. So I'll buy puts on a lot of my positions that have ran a ton. So I did have some shop puts. I did have mealy puts. I did have SPX puts. So I made money off of those. Obviously, a hedge is meant to try to keep your account even. But when you're exceedingly bullish still and not really expecting a huge dive like that, you're still going to take a hit. So I did take a hit. But what I did was I looked back and I said, hmm, this selling looks kind of out of control. The shop dropped from 1072 to 932, then down to 909. And the way that it was dropping was five point ticks every couple of seconds. So you know that that's not just mom and pop investors selling. That's a big quant fund out there dumping a huge position because they're like, all right, I'm happy. And they just click the sell button like you and I can just do. And they just didn't care. They made enough. So someone tapped them on their shoulder and said, get out of this. I figured that because they're a big quant fund, they use a lot of algorithms. A lot of them are new in this market. I was thinking that this would be kind of like a technical analysis kind of situation. And in fact, it was. Someone pointed out to me that QQQ only goes down four days in a row in the last while. And that's pretty accurate. So it went down four days in a row and then reversed it today. So I'm looking at all those different comparative things to see when it's going to turn. Now, Shop hit the bottom of its channel trend line from 300. Mealy did the same. Amazon did similarly. So that's kind of when I started doubling down on my longer term position. So in a situation like that, you don't want to risk too much on the weekly because you could be wrong again. And then that's going to be an unfortunate situation for you. But if you buy yourself some time and you believe that, you know, that would probably be the bottom. So I started loading those shops at 917. You know, it dipped down another 10 points, but that was pretty much the bottom. I loaded the crap out of Mealy at 946, which was like six, seven points off the low. And those were just all based off technicals. So I figured if the quant funds are selling it, they're going to be buying off the technicals. You know, everyone else is going to be buying off the technicals. So that's how I managed that. And then on Friday, I saw that Mealy, who actually does have like a pretty small float and it's pretty thinly traded when you look at, you know, comparative between Shop and Tesla and Amazon, very thinly traded, lower market cap. So it was the first one to reverse. And in fact, it closed pretty well for the day on Friday. So that told me that next week tech would come back. And then this morning we saw Amazon was up 50 points on Monday pre-market. And when the big boy leader that ran 1,300 points since COVID started is up 50 points after the last week, it was down every single morning. That's the tell right there. So you had two things, two ducks in a row. So I'm glad that I doubled down and I'm glad that I bought a lot of tech for this week after seeing those little indicators. So it's really important to watch those indicators. But if you do get caught in something like that, you want to be hedged regardless. If you have a big portfolio with a bunch of positions, stay hedged. That way you can do my number one rule is trade another day. I'll just pause for a moment. You absolutely ripped the face off of Melly. I know you made a <laughs> lot of happy folks there. Uh, when it comes to Melly, I know we were talking a little bit pre-show here about the opportunity cost of capital, right? So we were going through my portfolio and, and I love Facebook. I had a whole thesis behind it, thinking that it's going to go to 500, which you acknowledge it, it may, right? It but probably I, you know, will. My personal thesis is that they're going to dominate retail in the coming years, the integration with Shopify, the stores that they're putting together. It all looks wonderful to me. But I I was really fascinated when you talked about the opportunity cost of the capital. Yeah, absolutely. So there's something that like came to me probably three to six months ago when I started out investing in the fund. And the first things I bought was like Apple and Microsoft. And I was trying to be cookie cutter. I was like, if they're doing well doing it, which honestly, I was dumb for thinking that because they're not. But knowing that every dollar can only be basically used once unless you're a maniac like Millennium and you're doing a bunch of leverage or Citadel. Visa, for instance, 
is a $420 billion market cap. Apple's $1.7 trillion. Facebook, I don't know, it's like 500, 600 billion. So those stocks make up such a big percentage of the NASDAQ, like probably 50% now. And the S&P 500, probably 25 to 30% is just those big five names, Google included as well. So for those stocks, if those stocks double, like if you think Facebook goes to two, to 500, which I don't disagree, but in that time, that will probably make Apple double. That will probably make Visa double. That'll probably make Google double. You know, all those stocks will probably double if that happens. So if that happens, genuinely, the market will probably double. The S&P will probably be 6,000. The NASDAQ will probably be 20,000 just because like those are what make up those indices. And so if that happens, the market's going to rally like crazy. And there's going to be a bunch of other companies that are going to be in a way better position for you to make a higher return on your investment. So the way that I'm looking at the opportunity cause of capital is basically the way that I run my fund. A good example I was talking about on Twitter, nearly should be $2,000 a share today. It's a better company than Shop today and should be worth at least $110 billion if Shop is worth $110 billion. You'll see data speaks for itself. Mealy will now report a flat earnings per share as expected. It'll do way more. So the reason I'm saying that is because I looked at the data between Mealy and Shop. Mealy does higher revenue. Mealy's margins are pretty similar to Shop's, except that they're in like three different companies. You know, they do payment processing, they do e-commerce, and, and they're expanding. So there, there's really no reason to think that Shop should be. 110 billion if Mealy's worth 47 billion. So for me, that kind of was like an eye opener because I'd never really put that together. I love both companies a lot. So I was always in both and I probably will still remain in shop a bit, but I'm definitely going to be upping my Mealy stake more than shop because it's just a better opportunity cost of capital. It's the same as like why buy Facebook when you could buy Fastly. It's worth 50 times less, you know, and if Facebook doubles the need for Fastly, the need for net, is going to at least double, if not triple, quadruple, whatever it's going to be. So that's a better return on your capital. So I like to put my money where I can make the most. Devil's an advocate, because I know some haters will come out and say, you know, doubling would be great if Facebook can go to 500 or everything starts to double in a safe investment, right? So talk to potential haters and even myself who would be questioning something like this. Wouldn't there be risk then associated, obviously? Yeah, absolutely. So like, if you, if you look at what you're holding, right, like it depends on the kind of investor you are and also like depends on your age. So like I'm a young investor, 23. I want to buy growth stocks because, you know, in 10 years, those can go and become the Amazons, the shops, the Googles. If you're a little older, you obviously want to be in less risky assets. You know, that's why people who are older, they buy more bonds and they buy blue chip dividend paying stocks. If you're just like looking at it from a period, you know, take out all the demographics of who you are as an investor. And you're just talking about just the real skill and like the craft of investing. If you want your money to be worth the most, that's when you consider the opportunity cost of capital. You know, I do have some stuff in my fund that is not, I guess, risky or growth oriented, of course. You know, like I buy SPACs in the form of cash for me just to hold until they do a merger. I even have some other things that are like ETFs, like IGV, IHI, which are BlackRock's ETFs, which have a bunch of different companies involved. So I do have a diversification level of risk for myself, but I'm talking just like strictly on a like stock by stock basis. You know, that's really when you want to factor in the opportunity cost of capital. You talked about Melly, you talked about Shop. How about their little brother, Jumia Technologies? So shout out to Anthony, who I work with, different Anthony. <laughs> he shared this with me a few weeks back. Jumia is the African version more or less of a shop or Melly. Obviously there's some differences. Jumia is a huge e-commerce operator. They also do, you know, food delivery, digital payments, so along the same lines, right? Their market mm-hmm. caps only 730. I don't know if you know a ton about them, but 
Uh, that's definitely a one to look at. Ticker's uh, JMIA popped 25% today. So yeah, massive cr- and huge move. opportunity. Yeah. So, I mean, like I- I've definitely traded it a few times on like those volume spikes and I was actually looking at it today, completely missed it. But yeah, I mean like anything that's worth 730 million market cap, if you're into the space of e-commerce, you can even diversify between the sectors that you're in, right? So like I own SEA limited, C limited, ticker symbols SE. So that's like Southeast Asia, things in India, Shopify is, you know, America, Canada, Amazon is you know, basically worldwide these days. Mercado Libre is Latin America. So like it wouldn't be at all far-fetched for me to get into JMIA. And in fact, I probably will. Seeing that it's, it's already starting to break out, I think it's over its recent highs for the last couple of years. So it's something interesting. It's a breakout opportunity that I probably will take a look at tomorrow in the next coming days. I'm smiling right now because this is the first time you uh, are taking a stock pick from me. So I will uh, take that as uh, I'm the fucking new king in town. Uh, so last week, actually, I went into New York. I've been out in New Jersey at uh, my fiance's house. And when I went there, I, I just noticed no one was in my apartment, right? And, and this is uh, alluding to Redfin, which I'll get into in just a second. But I, I found it fascinating that talking to my doorman and he goes, typically we have three to four empty apartments at this time. 41 vacancies out of my apartment building. Of, you know, granted, there's 500, but 41 compared to typically yeah, being three, huge, right? Huge change. This is real data now, at least from, from my building, uh, that people are you know moving out of the city. So we also got a tweet here from at Supply My Demands. I think his name is Chase, who mentioned Redfin is coming next. Redfin has about 74 million homes. By contrast, Zillow is providing estimates for about 110 million homes. So again, we talked about it a little bit, but do you have anything additional to share here on Redfin? Uh, obviously, it's been popping here the past uh, yeah. week or so. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of people were like thinking that it was a bad play on, on why I was very long on the stock. Even Bank of America came out last week and downgraded the crap out of it and it went from 41, 42 to like 36, which I almost tripled down on it right there because there's nothing I like more than when people and institutions hate a stock. The last stock that was hated this much is Tesla. You know, everyone was short, Goldman Sachs, bunch of hacks, analysts there, shorting the crap out of Tesla, giving downgrades right before it's about to break out, all institutional bias, and they're all just playing their game and still losing. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell I really don't like Goldman. This is like the fourth podcast I've mentioned that on. You're about to get a season to slice. (laughs) And we've only had four podcasts. But I mean, anytime somebody who's in the industry says that they hate something because it's disrupting the way that they do something, my gosh, that's that tells me all I need. I will tell you the data here. Redfin sells homes faster and for more money. So uh, the percent of listings sold within 90 days regularly in the industry is 79.8%. And Redfin's is 82.8%. So not a huge difference, but for something that's kind of newer, just coming into the market, already beating the average standard, that's huge. Higher repeat rate. Now, this is a huge difference. Buyers using the same brokerage to sell the home that they bought, 58% difference between the two. That's, That's massive. So People don't have a loyalty to any other of these brokerage sites. They have a loyalty to Redfin. They got five times more traffic than the second largest brokerage website. That is wow. absurd to me. You know, and like way, way, way more monthly average unique visitors. I mean, that, that's, that's enough data for me. And then you look at who's involved in it, right? The agents earn about two times more on their agent payments. And not even that, the Redfin agents close way more sales per year. The average for all brokerages is three times less than Redfin's average for the agents. So You've got a company that's got people working there who are not only satisfying their customers at way higher percents, giving their customers more money that is close to the listing price of of the houses that they're selling. As we talk about this shift that moves people from commercial real estate into residential, I think this is a huge opportunity. There's very few companies that 
a lot of people disagree with me on that I just will pound the table on. And this is this is really one of them. So I, I will not sell until it's 100. Absolutely love hearing that. I think I got about 10, 15% of my portfolio in Redfin. Shifting the tables a little bit here. Obviously, pounding the table is completely just breaking the internet. But we're not the only ones. Cloudflare, both literally and metaphorically, broke the internet. So yesterday, their DNS went down. Talk to me a little bit about this. I know, obviously, the stock went down very quickly, popped right back up. Are you still bullish on this? So anytime a stock is getting big, net basically you know helps run 40% of the internet, which is absurd to me. I didn't even know that. That's huge. But you know, if you look at something like Zoom, they had their security, their security breaches, privacy hacks, this and that, and the stock still went fourfold. So it doesn't matter what happens. It's how they respond to it. So that's why I think it's really bullish. Zoom did their security patches pretty quickly. Net was only down for 23 minutes total. They issued a whole press release about exactly what happened and what they're doing to fix it. Even the, the CEO and the company tweeted exactly what happened and how they fixed it. It means like they're on their game and they don't want to mess up. Obviously, people make mistakes, especially anyone that's groundbreaking in their field. And so I think it's very bullish, especially the way that they responded. If they would have ducked and covered, not really talked about it, spent some time dealing with it. And if they would have been down for two days, yeah, obviously a very different situation. And in fact, the stock is coming right back up to where I was first pounding the table on this. I got in at 27 and I added way more around 39, even got some calls on it. So I'm not taking any of those off. Yeah, I think it's all about ownership. Uh, Snapchat did a really good job when they had a lot of flack for their Juneteenth filter. Uh, They reacted very quickly, took it down right away. And the stock did not take a huge hit because of that. So really is how you address it and, and show that you have the right path forward. So shifting gears here a little bit, you're notorious for having a lot of funky phrases, talking shit on the internet. Some I find weird as hell, candidly. <laughs> Others I find very interesting. Obviously, you did not make up a spade as a spade. I don't know if you're a card player or you're neutering female dogs, but how does this relate to investing and, and what does that actually mean for you? I mean, besides my rule of make sure you trade another day, that's definitely my biggest rule. I was just saying a spade is a spade. It was about Mealy and Shop in the same way. They should be worth the same at least. So here's like, I was long docu from 36. Everyone was saying it's overpriced. It's crazy. La la la. DocuSign had a similar beginning and it IPO'd earlier and it moved way before Datadog. So DocuSign did a secondary offering and uh, T. Rowe Price basically bought like the majority of the outstanding shares on that right as soon as the secondary came out. So like the, the float did not expand from that secondary offering. It was absorbed very, very quickly. And then DocuSign proceeded to go to 76 in the next three months. And now it went up to 225. It wasn't like ripping 40 points a day. It was a consistent three, five, 10 points a day, you know, down two or three, up two or four, you know, something like that, you know, a couple of steps forward, less steps backwards. Datadog did the exact same thing. And T-Row did the exact, T-Row Price did the exact same thing. I think there's a stipulation in Datadog's lockup period where if it closed at 30% over the IPO price or something, they would release the entire amount of secondary shares. And exactly 30% over was 36.2% on the stock. Of course, the Friday when this was happening, it closed exactly at that price. So one cent higher and the secondary wouldn't have gone through. That is the most absurd market manipulation I've ever seen in my entire life. But I bet I know why. Because they wanted to buy more shares. And they didn't care about the dilution. And they knew that even though the company is really highly valued within that, the growth that it has is insane. The amount of people who like it and use it, and even I hear about it from people who are in the industry, just they're saying, yeah, Datadog's great, Datadog's great. Once again, when people talk about it who aren't in the market, that's a great sign. 
So then obviously DDoG proceeded to do the same thing as DocuSign did. DDoG went to 50, popped on their earnings. DDoG is now close to 100. And I'm pretty sure that DDoG is going to follow the same moves as DocuSign. And in fact, it's already moving very similarly. So I would be surprised if DocuSign and DDoG don't continue to follow in that path. I would think DocuSign could go to 300, maybe 400. It's not that crazy of a market cap. And you know everyone uses DocuSign now. But I do think DDoG could go to 200. And um, I think it's probably going to follow the path that DocuSign did. So if you want to know when that's going to happen, follow the chart of DocuSign, see when that happened. And then, you know, give it the time that Datadog IPO'd later than it. And then just follow that up. I'm still long from 36. I'm not going to get out of it. Once again, people ask, when do you sell your positions? Well, if I like the company, I'm not. Fair enough. Uh, a lot of folks have been reaching out regarding charting, right? So people think your charts have to be a 212 RSI MACD cup handle reverse invokes Xbox Tarantula 460 water slide indicators. Half of those are made <laughs> up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Do you, do you actually look at, at charts? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mentioned this a few times about the thesis I did in college, and I gathered a bunch of data from these different Bitcoin charts, which I use as a control because there's really nothing backing the value of Bitcoin besides obviously just the, the blockchain secured network and the limited amount of, of coins. You know, there's no inflation, nothing backed by the US government. No earnings, no you know future projections of growth. So that's pretty much as like bland as you can get for an interpretation of how people view charts. And then obviously, it's all visual, right? You're you're kind of just looking into how people interpret what they see. So you got a lot of people who put so much noise on their charts. They have like a cub and handle going into a channel, going into like the 200-day moving average and the exponential, uh, this and that, whatever. And that's why I was like, you know, referencing that John Gruden cliff where he's like talking about Xbox Tarantula 460 football plays. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, why are you going to put that much noise into it? If you know people are just looking at stuff and they're using their eyes 90% of the time, a lot of people probably disagree with this and they're wrong. The big boys use technicals too. And I, I don't trade first base off of technicals unless the news is good. And if the news is good, if things are running it'll move off technicals like shop and melee moved off technicals when things were bad so you have to figure out when that's going to work but the only really thing that i look at in terms of technicals is horizontal lines and uh pennants because what i found is that those are the most illicit things that people can understand and see and say wow i can predict what's going to happen here so obviously that produces a lot of tomfoolery that's why there's a lot of false breakouts and if something breaks under that support line that's horizontal It'll do like a fast dive sometimes, and then it'll pop right back up to take out the stops. But you just got to know about that and just don't don't clutter your charts too much. Don't clutter your investment thesis too much. or Otherwise, you're just going to be looking at a bunch of noise instead of watching what you need to see. So you're saying every time we record and I drink this bottle of wine, <laughs> when I switch the wine and the legs are showing me different charts... Don't actually go off those specifically because this is. Avi, you nailed now. it. You nailed it once again. <laughs> well said. Um, so yeah, let me let me let me uh, just go in here. But these trading rules I talk about. So I'm going to give you guys two of these every week, and I've got about ten of them. And after that, I guess I'll just make up some more because I definitely have some more. But these are the ten that I hold closest to my heart that I use every single week. And in fact, I read them every morning just to make sure I don't try to make these mistakes again. So here, here's rule number one: If I want to get longer a stock, if it's moving really well that day, and I'm very very bullish. I'm going to add to the existing stock I already have, or I'm going to go and buy some time through long calls. And I might even sell some put spreads for that week. But for me, I found that it's pretty risky to buy weekly calls when stuff has already run a ton or is continuing to run. Unless you're taking profit, of course, you know, like let's say you have a certain call strike and it doubles or triples for that week. 
Then if you go and you put in just what you put in initially to the next strike, as we talked about in the other podcast rolling up, that's okay. But if I want to get more exposure, that's not the way that I want to do it. I want to get something that's got time in case it's a fake breakout like we were just talking about. And if it's not a fake breakout and it keeps going, okay, so maybe you would have made a little bit more with the long calls. But over time, if you do this 10 times, I'm pretty sure what I'm saying about buying time, stock, long calls, selling put spreads is going to work out for you much, much better. Uh, Rule number two is definitely something that I'm struggling with myself in this market that keeps going up. Uh, I want to protect my positions, but I'm realizing that a lot of my hedges are costing me more than I want. Say the market's running 30, 40, 50 points. I'm going to buy some puts on a lot of my positions because a ton of them have exploded. The market's flying. You know, I want to buy SPX puts, this and that. Those are my biggest losses for the year is SPX puts. And that's what you want in a hedge. You want it to go to zero. But I think over time, you know, you see that that becomes a big chunk, right? That's like almost 5% of what I would be making in gains. Of course, you know, when the market dives a ton, you're really protected on that day. So you have to decide whether you want to be in a position where if the market does horribly, once out of the month or twice out of the month, if that's going to be worth it to you to spend that money every week. So it really does cost you more money over time is what I found. Unless there's a massive breakout where market's 50, 60, 70, 80 points up, you want to capture those gains, go ahead and hedge. Because honestly, I'm going to keep hedging, but I would rather just like take off some of my long positions. That way I don't have to waste money on the downside. And if the market reverses, I've locked in my gains and I'm going to be a happy man when I go to bed. So I just came up with this on the spot here. Maybe this is good. Maybe it's not. Instead of questions from the audience, we're going to call them sounders from the pounders. So I love it. the first <laughs> question here, Anthony's mom is an avid listener of Pounding the Jables. So we gave Your her a mom. chance to give a huge question that's on every single person's mind is, Anthony, how do you stay so nice when people try to put you down all the time? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, that's a learning curve. It's an acquired taste to not, you know, blow up and let it affect you. I remember when I was like 16, 17, and I was like super bullish Tesla. And I was like, still into Amazon and Google and everything at the time. I remember getting destroyed on Twitter, other financial websites and such. My teachers said my account gains aren't real because everyone makes money in a bull market by buying calls. So, I mean, the biggest thing you have to realize is that but the only time somebody wants to put you down is when they've got something that they're not feeling good about. So uh, I, I try to be nice. You know, I try to like say, okay, well, like you know, I, I've been there and I've been in a position where I, you know, you can put someone down and be like, well, it's just how I feel. I, I'm, I'm justified in my actions. But at the end of the day, you're going to realize that like paying it forward and being better about the way that you treat people and act with people is going to give you way more down the road. I wouldn't have gotten some Peak Life AirPods from uh, the beautiful Peak Life chat we have with you and a couple other friends if I was a stingy, mean guy all the time. Not to say that I don't love the AirPods, but it's never about that. It's just about what you can do for people. It's nothing other than Peak Life because Peak Life is really just about doing the best life you can. You're not going to live the best life you can on your own. So you put people down, you're going to be alone. So you want, you want to give people as much as they can because at the end of the day, whether you want it or not, it's going to come back to you. And conviction is key. So even if I'm wrong, I don't mind being wrong right then. You know, I've been wrong so many times and I've just trying to make sure that I'm right more than I'm wrong. You know, I can get shaken out of a play and then I can flip the other side and then I can lose twice on it. Or I can hold my ground and say, unless something insane happens and an asteroid that's going to come and murk all the dinosaurs on earth happens, there's nothing that's changed. <laughs> I'm cracking up right now because this is, this is, Life advice now. I'm, I'm crying right now and laughing. A lot of emotions going on, but I totally agree. I mean, I think this negativity shit has got to stop people, cancel culture, everything. 
guys, just try to smile a bit. <laughs> Enjoy yeah. life. It's pretty short. So uh, smile, help other people yeah. out. Everyone's just trying to make so... money too. Everyone's just trying to, you know, provide right. for their family and be happy. So there's no reason everyone can't try to do that together in a positive, happy way. Of course, if somebody's going to come at me and, you know, say that my charts look like a four-year-old with crayons, I'm going to tell them, well, look at my funds year one gains. But other than that, I'm going to be a really nice guy. For anyone that's listening to this, please comment, Tony, with your hardest <laughs> takes. This will be great for me to watch on the sideline. Don't You'll probably make a friend. Yet. You'll probably make a friend. <laughs> exactly. That friend would be me. Um, anyways, <laughs> so back to stonks. Um, so we got a few other questions. Some of these are similar, so we'll try to mesh them together. And I'll try to mesh this person's Twitter handle. Sumso Sakar or Sumo Sakar asks, <laughs> how do you decide your positions? Sizing on weeklies, stocks, and leaps. Is it a set percent of your portfolio or do you allocate different type or is it dynamic based just how you feel? Do you swish around the wine glass and see, you know, where those legs are going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a tough thing because the market's always very different. So like in March, actually, when the market was crashing a ton, I was in a lot of stocks, which was good because I had enough capital to rebuild and buy leaps because I knew that down 40%, it's like you either take the shot there or you're going to have to do whatever you can with the stocks that you've already lost money on. So at that point, I was like probably 70% in leaps, which I know was extremely risky, but what a fantastic play that was. But you know, typically on an average week, I do a good amount of balance between them. So I'll do probably 60 to 65% stocks. And in, in those stocks, I have different value, like levels of risk. Of course, I have like those ETFs that I hold. I have those growth stocks and I'm diversified between like some bios, some bigger names like Google that don't dive 50, 80%. Like, you know, maybe if except something bad, exactly, except <laughs> if some growth stocks can do that, you know, they ran so much, who knows? But at some point you got to take a shot. And if it's ever going to be a time, it's when a possible 80 point SPX move is there. So I would say that I would give 60% to my stocks, 20 to 25% to my leaps, and anywhere between 5 and 8% for my uh, weeklies. It's definitely based on how I feel, but it's also based on how much I'm up for the year. And, you know, we're going into the election. Once again, I've told you I'm a little bit reserved about that. So I'm going to be taking stuff off, continuing, as I said, to put money into SPACs as my cash reserve. Um, so that's kind of how I'm playing that. So coming off of that, um, let's just say you had a hundred thousand dollars, keep round numbers, Bubba Gummo coming out of Louisiana, I guess, <laughs> or somewhere along those lines, uh, had asked what percentage do you use to hedge? I just want to say this fantastic question because a lot of people ask me, how do I hedge? And, and you really can't understand how I hedge without knowing what I'm hedging. So it depends if I'm in stocks and I have a hundred thousand and I'm probably not going to hedge that much, you know, like worst case, I'm going to go down 20, 25%. At the same time, I can write cover calls and make three or five percent a week. So in five weeks, I'm break even. That's fine. But if I'm in a hundred thousand dollars in leaps, all right, well, that's a problem because if the market crashes like hell, I want to be protected. And you know, the thing is leaps have a ton of time, it's not infinite time, and those option values can crater very, very quickly. And if they don't come back in the time that you have for the expiration date, you're basically buying weeklies and you're screwed. So if I'm in options, and this is what I usually only hedge. I don't really hedge my stocks. I hedge the overall market as a proxy to hedge my stocks because you know I don't know which specific one's going to go down. I don't want to waste money on stuff that's going to keep running or that's going to stall or that's going to erode my premium. As I said, I don't want to waste too much money in my hedge. It's one of my rules. But if it's all options, for instance, I'm going to hedge probably 5 to 10% of that through weeklies. And that's like if the market's exploded a ton because let's say you know if the market keeps running, those leaps will go 10, 20, 30% a day. That's fine if I waste 5K hedging. 
if the market's like stalling flat, hasn't really done much for a while, maybe I'm predicting a breakout's going to happen. So I would probably hedge not as much. I'd probably hedge two to 3%. Using weeklies, of course, maybe 4% max. Because the thing is, if those portfolios crashes to zero and the stocks are all down 50%, like in March, those weeklies will cover the vast majority of what you've got in terms of leaps. So I like to be agile, be able to sell things that I don't really want to hold anymore, but I always, always stay hedged. So Stock Tendies asks, what's the rule you have about letting those winners run? So I'm thinking just Avi Injection here, Mikrata Libre. That one's just ripping, obviously, up 60 points today on Monday. When do you say, all right, enough's enough, fuck it, let me take these winnings, or do you just keep letting them run? I think that's a big question everyone's probably asking. Absolutely. I mean, and a lot of people are like, well, you got into Fastly at 22. What are you going to do there? You got into LVGO at 25. What are you going to do there? So, I mean, that's the thing. If I love a company and I think that it's just getting started, I'm not going to sell. I'm really not going to sell until I see that the growth is slowing down, until I see that the margins are not as good, until I see them stop putting money into research and development, which I think we talked about this in podcast too, about how I identify which stocks I like. So, you know, if you want to hear more about my exact you know method for picking a stock, go to that one. Um, But in terms of those little ones that are smaller market cap, they can become those huge market cap stocks. And I'd rather lose that position than lose out on the 10 times I could make or 20, 30, 50, you know, Amazon 10,000, whatever it is times when it IPO'd from the lows. So, I mean, I don't really want to get out of those things, but if it's something like Mealy or Shop or even Tesla, you know, Tesla now is a high market cap. I'm not going to sell because it's even though it's running like crazy, I'm in from really, really low and I love the company. So I'm, I don't mind breaking a rule there. But with you know something like Shop or Mealy, I always take gains because I'm usually not in those with a lot of stock. I'll play those because they're big movers with long-term options. And what I'll do is usually multiple strikes because one thing I learned is if I only have one strike, sometimes I can do the, the click and done and I'm out. And then I'm like, man, I, I'm going to chase it. Or, you know, if it drops, I'll buy way too much on the first drop and I'll end up getting hammered. If I would have just kept my, my normal position, I would have been fine. So what I do now, and this is why I did pretty well in the last week, even though a lot of my positions went down 20%. And that's like completely fine with the amount of risk I take on, um, especially if I'm having 10% days left and right. That, that's okay with me. You're not going to get those returns without a little bit of risk. So what I do there is, let's say shop ran from 700 to 1100 almost. I took off half my leaps. I didn't buy stock yet because I figured you know, there might be a pullback. And the same with Mealy. I, I want to sell those options that have that limited amount of time, even though it's a lot of time because I always buy longer term. And then when it drops, you can always get back in. But if you make a substantial gain on something and also looking at the rest of your portfolio, if you've got these other growth stocks that can run in tandem with these momentum, big price stocks, then you, you, you can stay balanced. You can sell out of the bigger ones that have run a ton, you know, shop 400 points, Mealy 700 points, Tesla 900 points. You can sell your long-term options on that, hold some of that capital, take that gain because nothing goes up forever and you can always get back in. The shorter term ones, a little harder because those can move so much more violently. And I think it's a disadvantage to people to get out of those. I would rather be comfortable with the position size I have and have money on the side to buy in case it drops a significant amount. All right. Next question we got from Abo Pon. I'm just reading through this. Probably should have asked this a few weeks ago, but... 
please talk about the best way to save on taxes while day trading. So this will be for 2021 purposes here. <laughs> Unless uh, you got the extension. Yeah, which I actually did. Yeah. Me, me too, me too. <laughs> you got to. Uh, better to trade from an IRA, 401k, or regular trading account for the best tax benefits at the end of the year. Yeah, so I mean, this is a huge, I, I, I have this issue with a lot of people who say, man, I hate that I have to pay taxes. If you made a ton of money in the market and you have to pay a bunch of taxes, that's a good thing. You know, taxes are not your friend, but they really are in the market. It means you did a great job. So what I would say is it depends on your goals and depends on what you want to you know, be trading. If you want to be trading stocks long-term and you want to hold them for a while, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, yeah, get yourself a Roth IRA. You can do a lot with that. You can use it towards your first home buy, medical expenses, this and that. So that's pretty huge. And you can take it out at a pretty appropriate time for your retirement, I would say. So that's like something I would do for long-term gains. If you're playing options, you know, if you make half a million dollars trading, quarter million dollars, hundred thousand, ten thousand, whatever it is, like whatever tax you're going to pay on that, that's you're going to be okay with that. You just got to make sure you put it aside. Do you um, not like, like roads, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not like education? No, nah, I'm just kidding. Big I, I also municipality guy. Not a not a big uh, tax guy myself. Uh, get yourself a Jewish accountant. <laughs> You'll be set. Big CPAs are huge too. Like pay the money for a good CPA. They can write off almost anything. Everyone wants to know. You made this massive hot take. The SPX is at thirty two fifty, I believe. Yep, thirty two fifty yeah. right now. Fifty one to be exact. D. Mitchter is saying SPX 3,400, how soon? And then he even writes LOL. So (laughs) (laughs) go for that one. I don't know if it's funny or if it's about to get rich. Who knows? I mean, but here's the thing. Like this level, I'm pretty sure 32, uh, 59, 58 break. So 3,261, just to be sure. That's a pretty huge level. If we break over that, there's an 80 point gap. There's always this potential, as I said, you know, you look at a horizontal line, that's a huge resistance. So they could pop it over and then dump it on us. So, I mean, this is where I was bullish up until this point, because that's where there's this huge gap from the first coronavirus crash in March. You want to be careful here. You make a ton of money. That's great. You know, take some, take some money off. Uh, Make sure to hedge too, if we get into that gap, because too many times I've seen that gap reversal happen. And it's pretty scary to think Google did the same thing. Google had that huge gap reversal. A bunch of other stocks did that too. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it's a definitely a possibility. So if we can clear that gap, if we can at least get more than halfway and close into that gap for like a day or two, probably two days to be safe, maybe three to be super safe, then we're going to SPX 3400 like in a week or two. Like that's the, that is the, there is, there's air above that. It's really nothing. Like just getting through that gap, even though the gap is, you know, air, that's why there's a gap there. There's nothing just traded in between it. But psychologically, now there's been a lot of trading that's happened in the last six months. That's a huge gap. So you want to be careful. But I think if we can clear that gap, we're going to have a really nice rally up to 3,400. Then the 3,400 test. And here's the next question from ROTEMC20. says, what's my plan after SPX 3,400? It depends on when that happens, right? So if we don't get to 3,400 before like September, here's the thing. Like I think the debate is going to be when I'm going to be in my calm risk off covered call SPAC cash mode. You know, I probably won't have leaps going into the election because you can always determine the reaction of a big event, like a huge event. You have no idea what's going to happen. Biden could win. Trump could win again. If Trump wins again, the market's going to rally. If Biden wins, the market's going to sell off. But once the debates happen, then you really see like the head to head battle. So that's September 29th. I'm going to be in that risk off. It's still long, of course, but 
not with the same kind of risk. Having long with options is far, far, far more risk on than just being long with stocks and SPACs. So that's what my plan is. It just all depends on the timing. If we get there, if we break 3,400 in two weeks, then 3,600 comes. 3,650, 38. That's 37.74 is what I like chart it out and predicted. So that can happen fast if we break 3,400. I mean, look, look what happened at the NASDAQ. I know tech obviously moves a lot faster, but tech is also in the S&P 500. It's a big, big part of it, a huge part of it. Those big five names are like 25%, as I said, 10 times in here. It's just, I need to hammer that home because people think the S&P 500 doesn't really move like the NASDAQ, but it's a big part of the same components. So if we get to 3,400 soon, I would think 3,600 comes. And then before the election, September 29th, uh, when the debates start happening, I want to be out before the middle of September and not like out as in all my stocks. I'm going to hold my long-term stocks through whatever happens. And I'll just hedge the stocks as I hedge everything else, but I will take off that options risk just in case things go bad. Let me ask the question again. What's your actual plan after SPX 3400? Are we doing yachts? Are we, are we going to Costa Rica? Oh, What's yeah, the no. actual plan here? Peak life yacht party in Miami. <laughs> 1000%. We'll be out there like Jay-Z, UGK, Big Pimp, and popping bottles of Cristal. It comes this time in the show where it's almost like the, the podcast condom, a.k.a. it is time to wrap things up. So, uh, Tony, let me kick it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, thank you guys so much for just continuing to listen to this. Like, It's, it's insane to me that 84% of everyone who tunes into Pounding the Table stays till the time the table's broken at the end. So, Big thanks to everyone there for listening all the way through. Also, thanks to six, 7,000 people who have already downloaded and listened to our podcast. That's like amazing. Thank you guys so much. And thanks to everyone who provides these questions, a huge part of our segment and all the ideas. We'll continue to add different things. You know, you guys give your comments and the different ideas you have, and we're happy to incorporate that in any other future episodes. Um, and we'll, we're going to keep doing this until the table continues to break. And, you know, every time we break a table, we'll just order another one from Ikea. So happy to break a thousand tables to make you guys happy. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a great trading week. Monday, we're back with our Superman capes on. Tony and I are back and pounding the table. We got a great episode for you guys this week. Earnings month is upon us. It's going to be a lot of interesting plays to see there in the coming weeks. Our first winner of the Pounder thesis pick is going to be talked about pretty shortly here, and obviously a whole lot more. Exactly right, Pound Nation. Uh, we got a fire podcast coming your way. We'll jump right into it. We got the winner of the PTT fan thesis pick. 
ton of great submissions, so it was pretty tough just to pick one. Uh, for those of you who do not follow us on Twitter, do so immediately. Each week we'll be taking submissions for that fan thesis pick. Something new we're trying out, basically crowdsourcing some picks. Tony and I will pick our favorite one. Of course, you have to have a thesis behind it. No, just tossing out a random stock ticker symbol. So with the first pick of the inaugural PTT fan thesis, Sheikhtar with Overstock. So this is not the original Overstock. What he says is, I do not pound the table often, but Overstock, O-S-T-K-O, trades at a 50% discount than the traditional O-S-T-K Overstock ticker symbol. So I'll be in the preferred dividend issue stock with a small float. This is the most retail investor friendly trade that I have ever seen. Why Overstock, Tony? Are, are they pulling a Wayfair? <laughs> you guys are going to have to Google that reference. But in, in all seriousness, why'd you select that one? So I'm always looking for something on the market that's providing a new way to look at how to buy assets, how to value assets, how to trade assets. There was the tech boom in the 2000s. There was the cryptocurrency rise of ICOs and other you know things like that. And in 2017, I even took out like most of my trading money and started going into crypto. And now we've got SPACs. But this is something that's really, really cool and new. And this is the first time I've seen this on the market. So Overstock.com will pay the first of its kind digital voting series A1 preferred stock OSTKO dividend. Really interesting. So it's a step toward using the distributed ledger technology to measure share ownership. So basically, that's blockchain technology um, being applied to stocks, which I think is just kind of revolutionary. And I was talking about this a few years ago, and I figured this is going to be how a lot of stocks start going towards their IPOs and start trading. The distributed ledger, the blockchain is a fantastic resource to allow this to thrive and grow. So the reason I picked this is because OSTKO, so this is the preferred uh, dividend issuing version of Overstock, the shares should theoretically trade at a higher price than the traditional Overstock shares OSTK ticker symbol because they have all the same rights as the traditional Overstock shares, but they have additional rights to dividends that are not paid to the traditional Overstock shares. So there's no reason in my mind that normal Overstock OSTK should be trading way higher than OSTKO. So I think there's a really interesting arbitrage opportunity here. And you kind of saw this a couple of years ago when Google did their split between Goog, G-O-O-G, and G-O-O-G-L, between voting shares and non-voting shares. And there was a big gap in there for a little while. But that gap is you know, significantly closed. So you know, an interesting way you could short OSTK and long OSTKO because the prices should become parity over time. But otherwise, you could just long OSTKO. I think I'm actually going to start accumulating that because I've read a lot about Overstock recently. It was a ridiculous buy at 250. Obviously, it's like pushing 50 now, so that's a 20x right there in a couple months. But you know, with this new distributed ledger dividend preferred stock, I think it's really interesting because no no one else is doing this. So I'm happy to jump on something just to see what's going to turn into. OSTKO is at about 33. 75 overstock right now is at 53.31. So there definitely does seem to be some opportunity there. Huge congrats to Sheikhtal, uh, the first inaugural winner of Pounding the Table thesis pick. We'll definitely be doing that every single week. But uh, yeah, let's just jump right into it, man. Obviously, earnings week's coming up. Netflix, massive, right? I mean, everyone predicted this shit was going to fly. Everyone's staying at home, Netflix, chilling, maybe a little bit more. But just when you're getting super excited, you think things are about to pop, they just go down and drop. So what the fuck happened there, man? Yeah, so I think it's a lot of psychological logic here. So you kind of look at things like Netflix that have done super well during this pandemic. Netflix basically doubled, added 25 million new subs, something insane. Like it was, it was a lot. And so even those great projections, they, they could be priced in at a point. And so I think that 
it's more of a psychological sentiment trade for earnings this time. So anything that's done really well during coronavirus, it's probably either going to stall or pull back a little bit because that has already been priced into the max. Like when the market dove in March, that's we dropped 40% in a matter of weeks. And that was like pricing in an asteroid hitting the left side of the earth. You know, that's the price is going to reflect what people think is going to happen in a few months. So maybe they think that things are going to get better and Netflix is going to stop being used as much. And so therefore it sold off a little bit and it was priced into the max value of the current time. People are looking at banks too, and everyone had really bad predictions on banks. And you know, we said this last podcast that I thought they were going to do fine, and they did do fine. In fact, Goldman Sachs was up 6% the morning of JP Morgan. All of them did pretty well. And even though they did get sold off, that was just a, you know, a big rotation into tech and then back into value. So it was like really interesting there to see that because the bad predictions here are already priced into the point. So my, my guess is that for the rest of the earnings, anything that people think is going to really do poorly should probably do well. Anything that people think is going to exceed expectations because it's going to do even better than everyone priced it in should probably stall or go down. So that's kind of how I'm going to be playing earnings. I think the majority of earnings will still rip. Honestly, people are way over impacting the impact of earnings here. It's just not going to be a big deal, in my opinion. There's so many other forces that are impacting the market. You've got you know COVID numbers coming out. You've got Fed stimulus. The EU is deciding to whether or not to, to do more leverage, allow leverage again on buying their stocks. And they're adding more to the coronavirus stimulus fund, which just came to my phone a second ago, $750 billion. So it's, it's really interesting stuff to see that these things that should really, really matter in a normal market just aren't. So I had a question here from Jimmy Boy, Samwise Glee. He said, thoughts on Tesla earnings and how it influenced the stock. I've, asked, I've been asked this question probably 50 times this week already. I'm long Tesla shares from 419 during the March crash. I'm not going to sell my shares, but you know, the Tesla earnings are always a wild card. You never know if it's going to do a stall to kill premiums and get the market makers some money back because they've been getting destroyed, or if it's going to rip 300, 400 points a week or two after like it has the last couple of times. So, I mean, I'm definitely not bearish on Tesla at all. In fact, like if it goes down, I know people will probably load up and get back into it. It's just such a great momentum mover. But the premiums on it are outlandish. In my opinion, if you're going to do premiums, you do spreads. And even that's for me, I I won't do that. I'm just going to hold my stock. Uh, If it dips, I'll probably buy more. If it rips, I'm going to be a happy man. Do do you see anything that happened in like Netflix where, you know, the obvious trend would be for it to to pop? Obviously, there's not necessarily that Corona impact and people staying at home necessarily. But, you know, the whole entire car market has seen some sort of turbulence here. Tesla kind of is an outlier, of course, but mm-hmm. you don't see the similar thing happening with Netflix yeah. where it just drops down very quickly. So the thing with Tesla here is that I think if they're positive this quarter, I'm pretty sure they get added to the S&P 500, which means so many people can get in. So many funds who have a mandate that they can only get into S&P 500 stocks, this and that, will load the crap out of Tesla if they haven't already. And they probably will be more that are sitting on the sidelines that are more conservative and waiting for you know, the actuality to come into reality. I don't really think it's going to have the same impact as Netflix earnings. You know, Tesla is the only automaker that has not had decreasing sales during this time. That's huge. And that's massive. I mean, everyone else, Honda, Toyota, Ford, they're all getting smacked around. So I think Tesla is, you know, it's my favorite stock since it was 80. It's still my favorite stock. So it's a winner. I know we've uh, talked a decent amount, of course, on the previous podcasts about SPACs, right? So you mentioned that you're looking to go to SPACs as kind of this flight to safety, quote unquote. Now I'm doing the, the, the spirit fingers here. But going into the elections, obviously people are going to gold, going back into cash. Tony's going to SPACs. Talk to me a little bit about why here again. Yeah, so I think it's just one of those opportunities, again, like I was just saying about you know OSTKO. It's something that you just haven't seen before. So 
these blank check companies are, are pretty new to the market and uh, not everyone's radar yet. I know Portnoy was in FMCI, made money on that. And that kind of brought it to a lot of people's attentions. And even CNBC started talking about them a little bit. But I think that it's really interesting that it's based on a cash value that goes into that IPO, right? So they're always issued at $10 a share. And that's based off of how much money is in that blank check company. So the, the floor on those is $10 a share, which is really interesting because usually you're like, oh, well, my stock can go to zero. Well, it really can't for SPACs because there's a cash value behind them. Like they have 12 to 18 months, I believe, to do a deal, to do a merger that you know brings a company public. So if they don't do a deal, it just dissolves and it's $10 a share and you're, you're chilling. But if they do a deal, most of the time, they're only going to do a deal if it looks like a good deal. And even if it's not a good deal in a couple of years, initially that, that hype's going to get them going. So I'm going to be loading into a lot of these SPACs because I'm not going to be as bullish going into the election, especially with the way the polls are. And trust me, I understand polls are flimsy and this and that, but it's a pretty big margin right now, Biden versus Trump. So it's like, I will take those odds as what they are just to be safe. I mean, I've already had a great year two in the last two weeks. So what I'm going to be buying a lot of, and I started loading these already, and I'll continue to accumulate them as I'm selling my long-term option positions. I'll be buying Feek, Flying Eagle. So it's the same guy who did DraftKings, a CCXX, and they have rumors to be going into Top Golf as their merger. IPOC and iBob, which I've talked about a couple of times, and that's ran by Chamath. He's the guy who took space. So that's one of my favorite investors too. So I, I would go and put my money with him if that makes sense. And LFAC. So I'm hearing some financial tech merger rumors there. So anything that's been doing payment processing, fintech has been doing very, very well recently. So instead of going into cash and not making anything and, and who knows what's going to happen to inflation, you, you want to be in something that has the potential to explode. So a lot of SPACs don't really do their mergers before six to nine months, sometimes 12 months. Um, so these, a lot, some of these are relatively new. Some of these are a little older, but it's just going to be a matter of time, in my opinion, before the merger comes in and they do the deal and then the hype comes in. So I'd rather put my money in there to sit because who knows one day they could just explode. And if they don't explode, it's just going to hit that floor base of $10 a share. And it's basically cash. So that's my play. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Flying Eagle. So the same guys that did DraftKings. I, I own a ton of DraftKings. Massive news coming out that Illinois is going to be receiving a temporary operating permit. So the launch is imminent. DraftKings has massive potential in my mind. So this is a an obvious pick. I know everyone comes to hear Tony talk, but uh, <laughs> hear me out on this one, guys. I, I truly believe in DraftKings. And here's why. They only have seven states that are allowed to bet online. So New Jersey, Indiana, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Colorado, West Virginia, and Iowa. So it's not just fantasy, which, you know, obviously the majority of states can do the daily fantasy sports, which is how it launched. But now they have seven states out of the 50 states that can actually now bet online. Illinois is going to be joining them and about 14 others are actually looking to to think about it. Everything that's happening with Corona, there's going to be so many reasons to to get in. They need it for tax purposes to start to recover. Uh, They're also getting into iGaming. They're only in three states right now with uh, Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. And DraftKings is just absolutely dominant. I'm sure you've seen their, their ads on TV. Uh, this is not an ad for them. This is purely my, my guidance here. But I, I truly think that you know, they own 75% of the market share right now for fantasy sports. And sports aren't even existing, really. Any major sport, of course, you can go bet on Korean baseball. You can go bet on uh, <laughs> myself playing on, on Warzone. Do not bet on me in, in Warzone. But there's just so much potential there. Another spec that I wanted to call out, obviously. So 
that that's my obby pick of, of the week here. Definitely with that Illinois news, I think it's going to pop. So check me next week. <laughs> we'll see if that works out, but uh, I'm going to inject myself there. So, and, that, uh, and that's how we, that's how we know that you are a degenerate sports gambler because your favorite pick is a sports gambling app. So there you go. Avi. Now we know who you are really. <laughs> the under 16 women's tennis in Cambodia has got to go. So let's, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll deviate off that a little bit. Obviously we love to pride ourselves that stonks only go up. Talk to me a little bit about this tech sell-off last week. We talked about in the beginning of the show, just the world was ending. We have months of great news. One day goes down. Everyone's thinking that the world's going to completely be demolished, right? How'd you handle that, man? So like, what did you do? Was there any way that you managed that specifically? Did you know that it was coming back quickly? Things popped back up here on Monday, but... You know, talk to me a little bit about what your thought process was with that. Were you scared? No, I mean, I don't really get scared, but I was definitely paying a lot more attention to the markets. You know, when markets going up and stuff, it's pretty easy to just like sit back, play some Fortnite, and watch Netflix. I've got notifications on my stocks, like everything I watch. You know, if it goes over a certain level, I get a ping. If it goes under a certain level, I get a ping. And when the market's running, I've got like you know 20, 30, 40 positions running at any time. Some are stocks, some are leaps, some are weekly options. And I'm always just watching what's moving or what's diving that day. I don't really care about what's just doing okay or not doing super great. But during this, I think a lot of that tech sell-off had to do with the fact that it was the monthly options expiration date. So this really smart trader I know, it goes by High Yield 6 on Twitter. He posted, uh, so why was tech down last week? Monthly OPEX, massive OI open interest on call side on the big names. Notice how the two leaders, Amazon and Tesla, were pinned near 3,000 and 1,500 after Tuesday. And now comes Monday after and ripper time once again. Lesson, stay away from markets on monthly OPEX. So, you know, that was a fantastic comment by him. Really, really, really smart. And I think that's such a, a true statement. I go into these monthly OPEX weeks. So it's when stocks that don't have weekly options every week, they expire that week. And so they only have options for that month. And a lot of stocks do that. But, you know, obviously some stocks that we talk about a lot, most of the stocks we talk about every week here, um, they have weekly options. So that month is when a lot of different things expire. And there's a lot of pinning that goes on. So if the big boys are getting pinned, the market's not really going to move. And especially knowing that Amazon was basically just going down and hovering at 3000, like he was saying, Tesla was up and down hovering at 1500 and a lot of other names, you know, Apple around 385, this and that. So I really didn't see it coming right then and there. But if I didn't see it come, I should have seen it coming because monthly OPEX, you know, that's probably my worst week out of the month, every month that I trade. So lesson learned. Don't do weeklies on option OPEX weeks. That's just a a big key there. But regardless, I was in the situation. So this is how I dealt with it. Every week I go into the next week on a Friday, I'll plan for the next week. So I'll buy puts on a lot of my positions that I've ran a ton. So I did have some shop puts. I did have mealy puts. I did have SPX puts. So I made money off of those. Obviously, a hedge is meant to try to keep your account even. But when you're exceedingly bullish still and not really expecting a huge dive like that, you're still going to take a hit. So I did take a hit. But what I did was I looked back and I said, hmm, this selling looks kind of out of control. The shop dropped from 1072 to 932, then down to 909. And the way that it was dropping was five point ticks every couple of seconds. So you know that that's not just mom and pop investors selling. That's a big quant fund out there dumping a huge position because they're like, all right, I'm happy. And they just click the sell button like you and I can just do. And they just didn't care. They made enough. So someone tapped them on their shoulder and said, get out of this. I figured that because they're a big quant fund, they use a lot of algorithms. A lot of them are new in this market. I was thinking that this would be kind of like a technical analysis kind of situation. And in fact, it was. Someone pointed out to me that QQQ only goes down four days in a row in the last while. And that's pretty accurate. So it went down four days in a row and then reversed it today. So I'm looking at all those different comparative things to see when it's going to turn. 
Now, shop hit the bottom of its channel trend line from 300. Mealy did the same. Amazon did similarly. So that's kind of when I started doubling down on my longer term position. So in a situation like that, you don't want to risk too much on the weekly because you could be wrong again. And then that's going to be an unfortunate situation for you. But if you buy yourself some time and you believe that, you know, that would probably be the bottom. So I started loading those shops at 917. You know, it dipped down another 10 points, but that was pretty much the bottom. I loaded the crap out of Mealy at 946, which was like six, seven points off the low. And those were just all based off technicals. So I figured if the quant funds are selling it, they're going to be buying off the technicals. You know, everyone else is going to be buying off the technicals. So that's how I managed that. And then on Friday, I saw that Mealy, who actually does have like a pretty small float and it's pretty thinly traded when you look at, you know, comparative between Shop and Tesla and Amazon, very thinly traded, lower market cap. So it was the first one to reverse. And in fact, it closed pretty well for the day on Friday. So that told me that next week tech would come back. And then this morning we saw Amazon was up 50 points on Monday pre-market. And when the big boy leader that ran 1,300 points since COVID started is up 50 points after the last week, it was down every single morning. That's the tell right there. So you had two things, two ducks in a row. So I'm glad that I doubled down and I'm glad that I bought a lot of tech for this week after seeing those little indicators. So it's really important to watch those indicators. But if you do get caught in something like that, you want to be hedged regardless. If you have a big portfolio with a bunch of positions, stay hedged. That way you can do my number one rule is trade another day. I'll just pause for a moment. You absolutely ripped the face off of Melly. I know you made a <laughs> lot of happy folks there. Uh, when it comes to Melly, I know we were talking a little bit pre-show here about the opportunity cost of capital, right? So we were going through my portfolio and, and I love Facebook. I had a whole thesis behind it thinking that it's going to go to 500, which you acknowledge it, it may, right? It but probably I, you know, will. My personal thesis is that they're going to dominate retail in the coming years, the integration with Shopify, the stores that they're putting together. It all looks wonderful to me. But I was really fascinated when you talked about the opportunity cost of the capital. Yeah, absolutely. So there's something that like came to me like probably three to six months ago when I started out investing in the fund. And the first things I bought was like Apple and Microsoft. And I was trying to be a cookie cutter. I was like, you know, if they're doing well doing it, which honestly, I was dumb for thinking that because they're not. But knowing that every dollar can only be basically used once unless you're a maniac like Millennium and you're doing a bunch of leverage or Citadel. Visa, for instance, is a $420 billion market cap. Apple's $1.7 trillion. Facebook, I don't know, it's like 500, 600 billion. So those stocks make up such a big percentage of the NASDAQ, like probably 50% now. And the S&P 500, probably 25 to 30% is just those big five names, Google included as well. So for those stocks, if those stocks double, like if you think Facebook goes to two, to 500, which I don't disagree, but in that time, that will probably make Apple double. That will probably make Visa double. That'll probably make Google double. You know, all those stocks will probably double if that happens. So if that happens, generally the market will probably double. The S&P will probably be 6,000. The NASDAQ will probably be 20,000 just because like those are what make up those indices. And so if that happens, the market's going to rally like crazy. And there's going to be a bunch of other companies that are going to be in a way better position for you to make a higher return on your investment. So the way that I'm looking at the opportunity cause of capital is basically the way that I run my fund. A good example I was talking about on Twitter, Mealy should be $2,000 a share today. It's a better company than Shop today and should be worth at least $110 billion if Shop is worth $110 billion. You'll see data speaks for itself. Mealy will now report a flat earnings per share as expected. It'll do way more. So the reason I'm saying that is because I looked at the data between Mealy and Shop. Mealy does higher revenue. Mealy's margins are pretty similar to shops, except that they're in like three different companies. You know, they do payment processing, they do e-commerce, and, and they're expanding. 
So there, there's really no reason to think that shop should be 110 billion if Mealy is worth 47 billion. So for me, that kind of was like an eye opener because I'd never really put that together. I love both companies a lot. So I was always in both and I probably will still remain in shop a bit, but I'm definitely going to be upping my Mealy stake more than shop because it's just a better opportunity cost of capital. It's the same as like, why buy Facebook when you could buy Fastly? It's worth 50 times less, you know, and if Facebook doubles the need for Fastly, the need for net, it's going to at least double, if not triple, quadruple, whatever it's going to be. So that's a better return on your capital. So I like to put my money where I can make the most. Devil's advocate, because I know some haters will come out and say, you know, doubling would be great if Facebook can go to 500 or everything starts to double in a safe investment, right? So talk to potential haters and even myself who would be questioning something like this. Wouldn't there be risk then associated, obviously? Yeah, absolutely. So like, if you, if you look at what you're holding, right, like it depends on the kind of investor you are and also like depends on your age. So like I'm a young investor, 23. I want to buy growth stocks because, you know, in 10 years, those can go and become the Amazons, the shops, the Googles. If you're a little older, you obviously want to be in less risky assets. You know, that's why people who are older, they buy more bonds and they buy blue chip dividend paying stocks. If you're just like looking at it from a period, you know, take out all the demographics of who you are as an investor. And you're just talking about just the real skill and like the craft of investing. If you want your money to be worth the most, that's when you consider the opportunity cost of capital. You know, I do have some stuff in my fund that is not, I guess, risky or growth oriented, of course. You know, like I buy SPACs in the form of cash for me just to hold until they do a merger. I even have some other things that are like ETFs, like IGV, IHI, which are BlackRock's ETFs, which have a bunch of different companies involved. So I do have a diversification level of risk for myself, but I'm talking just like strictly on a like stock by stock basis. You know, that's really when you want to factor in the opportunity cost of capital. You talked about Melly, you talked about Shop. How about their little brother, Jumia Technologies? So shout out to Anthony, who I work with, different Anthony. <laughs> he shared this with me a few weeks back. Jumia is the African version more or less of a shop or Melly. Obviously there's some differences. Jumia is a huge e-commerce operator. They also do, you know, food delivery, digital payments. So along the same lines, right? Their market mm-hmm. caps only 730. I don't know if you know a, a ton about them, but uh, that's definitely a one to look at. Tickers uh, JMIA popped 25% today. So yeah, massive cr- and huge move. opportunity. Yeah. So I mean like I, I've definitely traded a few times on like those volume spikes. And I was actually looking at it today completely mystic. But yeah, I mean like anything that's worth 730 million market cap, if you're into the space of e-commerce, you could even diversify between the sectors that you're in, right? So like I own SEA limited, C limited, ticker symbols SE. So that's like Southeast Asia, things in India, Shopify is you know America, Canada, Amazon is you know, basically worldwide these days. Mercado Libre is Latin America. So like it wouldn't be at all far-fetched for me to get into JMIA. And in fact, I probably will. Seeing that it's, it's already starting to break out, I think it's over its recent highs for the last couple of years. So it's something interesting. It's a breakout opportunity that I probably will take a look at tomorrow in the next coming days. I'm smiling right now because this is the first time you uh, are taking a stock pick from me. So I will uh, take that as uh, I'm the fucking new king in town. Uh, so last week, actually, I went into New York. I've been out in New Jersey at uh, my fiance's house. And when I went there, I, I just noticed no one was in my apartment. Right. And, and this is uh, alluding to Redfin, which I'll get into in just a second. But I, I found it fascinating that talking to my doorman and he goes, Typically, we have three to four empty apartments at this time, 41 vacancies out of my apartment building. You know, granted, there's 500, but 
41 compared to typically yeah, being three, huge, right? Huge change. This is real data now, at least from, from my building, that people are you know moving out of the city. So we also got a tweet here from at Supply My Demands. I think his name is Chase, who mentioned Redfin is coming next. Redfin has about 74 million homes. By contrast, Zillow is providing estimates for about 110 million homes. So again, we talked about it a little bit, but do you have anything additional to share here on Redfin? Uh, obviously, it's been popping here the past uh, yeah. week or so. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, a lot of people were like thinking that it was a bad play on, on why I was very long on the stock. Even Bank of America came out last week and downgraded the crap out of it. And it went from 41, 42 to like 36, which I almost tripled down on it right there. Because there's nothing I like more than when people and institutions hate a stock. The last stock that was hated this much is Tesla. You know, everyone was short. Goldman Sachs, bunch of hacks, analysts there, shorting the crap out of Tesla, giving downgrades right before it's about to break out, all institutional bias. And they're all just playing their game and still losing. <laughs> yeah, you can tell I really don't like Goldman. This is like the fourth podcast I've mentioned that on. <laughs> You're about to get a season to slice. <laughs> and we've only had four podcasts. But I mean, anytime somebody who's in the industry says that they hate something because it's disrupting the way that they do something, my gosh, that's that tells me all I need to know. I will tell you the data here. Redfin sells homes faster and for more money. So uh, the percent of listings sold within 90 days regularly in the industry is 79.8%. And Redfin's is 82.8%. So not a huge difference, but for something that's kind of newer, just coming into the market, already beating the average standard, that's huge. Higher repeat rate. Now, this is a huge difference. Buyers using the same brokerage to sell the home that they bought, 58% difference between the two. That's, that's massive. So People don't have a loyalty to any other of these brokerage sites. They have a loyalty to Redfin. They got five times more traffic than the second largest brokerage website. That is wow. absurd to me. You know, and like way, way, way more monthly average unique visitors. I mean, that, that's, that's enough data for me. And then you look at who's involved in it, right? The agents earn about two times more on their agent payments. So not even that. The Redfin agents close way more sales per year. The average for all brokerages is three times less than Redfin's average for the agents. So You've got a company that's got people working there who are not only satisfying their customers at way higher percents, giving their customers more money that is close to the listing price of, of the houses that they're selling. As we talk about the shift that moves people from commercial real estate into residential, I think this is a huge opportunity. There's very few companies that a lot of people disagree with me on that I just will pound the table on. And this is, this is really one of them. So I, I will not sell until it's 100. Absolutely love hearing that. I think I got about 10, 15% of my portfolio in Redfin. Shifting the tables a little bit here, obviously pounding the table is completely just breaking the internet, but we're not the only ones. Cloudflare, both literally and metaphorically, broke the internet. So yesterday their DNS went down. Talk to me a little bit about this. I know obviously the stock went down very quickly, popped right back up. Are you still bullish on this? So anytime a stock is getting big, net basically you know helps run forty percent of the internet, which is absurd to me. I didn't even know that. That's huge. But you know, if you look at something like Zoom, they had their security, their security breaches, privacy hacks, and that, and the stock still went fourfold. So it doesn't matter what happens; it's how they respond to it. So that's why I think it's really bullish. Zoom did their security patches pretty quickly. Net was only down for twenty-three minutes total. They issued a whole press release about exactly what happened and what they're doing to fix it. Even the, the CEO and the company tweeted exactly what happened and how they fixed it. It means like they're on their game and they don't want to mess up. Obviously, people make mistakes, especially anyone that's groundbreaking in their field. And so 
think it's very bullish, especially the way that they responded. If they would have ducked and covered, not really talked about it, spent some time dealing with it, and if they would have been down for two days, yeah, obviously a very different situation. And in fact, the stock is coming right back up to where I was first pounding the table on this. I got in at 27 and I added way more around 39, even got some calls on it. So I'm not taking any of those off. Yeah, I think it's all about ownership. Uh, Snapchat did a really good job when they had a lot of flack for their Juneteenth filter. Uh, they reacted very quickly, took it down right away, and the stock did not take a huge hit because of that. So really is how you address it and, and show that you have the right path forward. So shifting gears here a little bit, you're notorious for having a lot of funky phrases, talking shit on the internet. Some I find weird as hell, candidly. <laughs> Others I find very interesting. Obviously, you did not make up a spade as a spade. I don't know if you're a card player or you're neutering female dogs, but how does this relate to investing and, and what does that actually mean for you? I mean, besides my rule of make sure you trade another day, that's definitely my biggest rule. I was just saying a spade is a spade. It was about Mealy and Shop in the same way. They should be worth the same at least. So here's like, I was long docu from 36. Everyone was saying it's overpriced. It's crazy. La la la. DocuSign had a similar beginning and it IPO'd earlier and it moved way before Datadog. So DocuSign did a secondary offering and a T. Rowe Price basically bought like the majority of the outstanding shares on that right as soon as the secondary came out. So like the, the float did not expand from that secondary offering. It was absorbed very, very quickly. And then DocuSign proceeded to go to 76 in the next three months. And now it went up to 225. It wasn't like ripping 40 points a day. It was a consistent three, five, 10 points a day, you know, down two or three, up two or four, you know, something like that, you know, a couple of steps forward, less steps backwards. Datadog did the exact same thing. And T-Row did the exact, T-Row Price did the exact same thing. I think there's a stipulation in Datadog's lockup period where if it closed at 30% over the IPO price or something, they would release the entire amount of secondary shares. And exactly 30% over was 36.2% on the stock. Of course, the Friday when this was happening, it closed exactly at that price. So one cent higher and the secondary wouldn't have gone through. That is the most absurd market manipulation I've ever seen in my entire life. But I bet I know why. Because they wanted to buy more shares. And they didn't care about the dilution. And they knew that even though the company is really highly valued within that, the growth that it has is insane. The amount of people who like it and use it, and even I hear about it from people who are in the industry, just they're saying, yeah, Datadog's great, Datadog's great. Once again, when people talk about it who aren't in the market, that's a great sign. So then obviously DDog proceeded to do the same thing as DocuSign did. DDog went to 50, popped on their earnings. DDog is now close to 100. And I'm pretty sure that DDog is going to follow the same moves as DocuSign. And in fact, it's already moving very similarly. So I would be surprised if DocuSign and DDog don't continue to follow in that path. I would think DocuSign could go to 300, maybe 400. It's not that crazy of a market cap. And you know everyone uses DocuSign now. But I do think DDoc could go to 200. And um, I think it's probably going to follow the path that DocuSign did. So if you want to know when that's going to happen, follow the chart of DocuSign, see when that happened. And then you know give it the time that Datadoc IPO'd later than it. And then just follow that up. I'm still long from 36. I'm not going to get out of it. Once again, people ask, when do you sell your positions? Well, if I like the company, I'm not. Fair enough. Uh, a lot of folks have been reaching out regarding charting, right? So people think your charts have to be a 212 RSI MACD cup handle reverse invokes Xbox Tarantula 460 water slide indicators. Half of those are made <laughs> up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, 
Talk to me a little bit about that. Do you, do you actually look at, at charts? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mentioned this a few times about the thesis I did in college, and I gathered a bunch of data from these different Bitcoin charts, which I use as a control because there's really nothing backing the value of Bitcoin besides, obviously, just the, the blockchain secured network and the limited amount of, of coin. There's no inflation, nothing backed by the U.S. government, no earnings, no you know future projections of growth. So that's pretty much as like bland as you can get for an interpretation of how people view charts. And obviously, it's all visual, right? You're, you're kind of just looking into how people interpret what they see. So you got a lot of people who put so much noise on their charts. They have like a cub and handle going into a channel, going into like the 200-day moving average and the exponential, uh, this and that, whatever. And that's why I was like, you know, referencing that John Gruden cliff where he's like talking about Xbox Tarantula 460 football plays. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, why are you going to put that much noise into it? If you know people are just looking at stuff and they're using their eyes 90% of the time, a lot of people probably disagree with this and they're wrong. The big boys use technicals too. And I, I don't trade first base off of technicals unless the news is good. And if the news is good, if things are running, it, it'll move off technicals. Like Shop and Mealy moved off technicals when things were bad. So you have to figure out when that's going to work. But the only really thing that I look at in terms of technicals is horizontal lines and uh, pennants. Because... What I found is that those are the most illicit things that people can understand and see and say, wow, I can predict what's going to happen here. So obviously that produces a lot of tomfoolery. That's why there's a lot of false breakouts. And if something breaks under that support line that's horizontal, it'll do like a fast dive sometimes and then it'll pop right back up to take out the stops. But you just got to know about that and just don't don't clutter your charts too much. Don't clutter your investment thesis too much. or Otherwise, you're just going to be looking at a bunch of noise instead of watching what you need to see. So you're saying every time we record and I drink this bottle of wine, <laughs> when I switch the wine and the legs are showing me different charts, don't actually go off those specifically because this is Avi, you nailed now. it. You nailed it once again. <laughs> well said. Um, so yeah, let me let me let me uh, just go in here. But these trading rules I talk about. So I'm going to give you guys two of these every week, and I've got about ten of them. And after that, I guess I'll just make up some more because I definitely have some more. These are the 10 that I hold closest to my heart that I use every single week. And in fact, I read them every morning just to make sure I don't try to make these mistakes again. So here's rule number one. If I want to get longer a stock, if it's moving really well that day and I'm very, very bullish, I'm going to add to the existing stock I already have, or I'm going to go and buy some time through long calls. And I might even sell some put spreads for that week. But for me, I found that it's pretty risky to buy weekly calls when stuff has already run a ton or is continuing to run. Unless you're taking profit of course, you know, like let's say you have a certain call strike and it doubles or triples for that week. Then if you go and you put in just what you put in initially to the next strike, as we talked about in the other podcast rolling up, that's okay. But if I want to get more exposure, that's not the way that I want to do it. I want to get something that has got time in case it's a fake breakout like we were just talking about. And if it's not a fake breakout and it keeps going, okay, so maybe you would have made a little bit more with the long calls. But over time, if you do this 10 times, I'm pretty sure what I'm saying about buying time, stock, long calls, selling put spreads is going to work out for you much, much better. Uh, rule number two is definitely something that I'm struggling with myself in this market that keeps going up. Uh, I want to protect my positions, but I'm realizing that a lot of my hedges are costing me more than I want. Say the market's running 30, 40, 50 points. I'm going to buy some puts on a lot of my positions because a ton of them have exploded. The market's flying. You know, I want to buy SPX puts, this and that. Those are my biggest losses for the year is SPX puts. And that's what you want in a hedge. You want it to go to zero. But I think over time, you, know, you see that that becomes a big chunk, right? Like that's like almost 5% of what I would be making in gains. Of course, you know, when the market dives a ton, you're really protected on that day. 
So you have to decide whether you want to be in a position where if the market does horribly once out of the month or twice out of the month, if that's going to be worth it to you to spend that money every week. So it really does cost you more money over time is what I found. Unless there's a massive breakout where markets 50, 60, 70, 80 points up, you want to capture those gains, go ahead and hedge. Because honestly, I'm going to keep hedging, but I would rather just like take off some of my long positions. That way I don't have to waste money on the downside. And if the market reverses, I've locked in my gains and I'm going to be a happy man when I go to bed. So I just came up with this on the spot here. Maybe this is good. Maybe it's not. Instead of questions from the audience, we're going to call them sounders from the pounders. So I love it. the first question here, Anthony's mom is an avid listener of Pounding the Table. So we gave Your her a mom. chance to give a huge question that's on every single person's mind is, Anthony, how do you stay so nice when people try to put you down all the time? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, that's a learning curve. It's an acquired taste to not, you know, blow up and let it affect you. I remember when I was like 16, 17, and I was like super bullish Tesla. And I was like, still into Amazon and Google and everything at the time. I remember getting destroyed on Twitter, other financial websites and such. My teachers said my account gains aren't real because everyone makes money in a bull market by buying calls. So, I mean, the biggest thing you have to realize is that but the only time somebody wants to put you down is when they've got something that they're not feeling good about. So uh, I, I try to be nice. You know, I try to like say, okay, well, like you know, I, I've been there and I've been in a position where I, you know, you can put someone down and be like, well, it's just how I feel. I, I'm, I'm justified in my actions. But at the end of the day, you're going to realize that like paying it forward and being better about the way that you treat people and act with people is going to give you way more down the road. I wouldn't have gotten some Peak Life AirPods from uh, the beautiful Peak Life chat we have with you and a couple other friends if I was a stingy, mean guy all the time. Not to say that I don't love the AirPods, but it's never about that. It's just about what you can do for people. It's nothing other than Peak Life because Peak Life is really just about doing the best life you can. You're not going to live the best life you can on your own. So you put people down, you're going to be alone. So you want, you want to give people as much as they can because at the end of the day, whether you want it or not, it's going to come back to you. And conviction is key. So even if I'm wrong, I don't mind being wrong right then. You know, I've been wrong so many times and I've just trying to make sure that I'm right more than I'm wrong. You know, I can get shaken out of a play and then I can flip the other side and then I can lose twice on it. Or I can hold my ground and say, unless something insane happens and an asteroid that's going to come and murk all the dinosaurs on earth happens, there's nothing that's changed. <laughs> I'm cracking up right now because this is, this is, Life advice now. I'm, I'm crying right now and laughing. A lot of emotions going on, but I totally agree. I mean, I think this negativity shit has, has got to stop people, cancel culture, everything. Guys, just try to smile a bit. <laughs> Enjoy yeah. life. It's pretty short. So uh, smile, help other people yeah. out. Everyone's just trying to make so... <laughs> money too. Everyone's just trying to you know provide right. for their family and be happy. So there's no reason everyone can't try to do that together in a positive, happy way. Of course, if somebody's going to come at me and you know say that my charts look like a four-year-old with crayons, I'm going to tell them, well, look at my funds year one gains. But other than that, I'm going to be a really nice guy. For anyone that's <laughs> listening to this, please come at Tony with your hardest takes. <laughs> this will be great for me to watch on the sideline. You'll Don't probably make a friend. Yet. You'll probably make a friend. <laughs> exactly. That friend would be me. Um, anyways, <laughs> so bag to stonks. Um, so we got a few other questions. Some of these are similar, so we'll try to mesh them together. And I'll try to mesh this person's Twitter handle. Sumso Sakar or Sumo Sakar asks, how <laughs> How do you decide your positions, sizing on weeklies, stocks, and leaps? 
is it a set percent of your portfolio or you allocate different type or is it dynamic based just how you feel? Do you swish around the wine glass and see, you know, where those legs are going? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a tough thing because the market's always very different. So like in March, actually, when the market was crashing a ton, I was in a lot of stocks, which was good because I had enough capital to rebuild and buy leaps because I knew that down 40%, it's like you either take the shot there or you're going to have to do whatever you can with the stocks that you've already lost money on. So at that point, I was like probably 70% in leaps, which I know was extremely risky, but what a fantastic play that was. But you know, typically on an average week, I do a good amount of balance between them. So I'll do probably 60 to 65% stocks. And in, in those stocks, I have different value, like levels of risk. Of course, I have like those ETFs that I hold. I have those growth stocks and I'm diversified between like some bios, some bigger names like Google that don't dive 50, 80%, like, you know, maybe if except something on Fridays, bad, exactly. Except <laughs> on Fridays. If some growth stocks can do that, you know, they ran so much, who knows? But at some point you got to take a shot. And if it's ever going to be a time, it's when a possible 80 point SPX move is there. So I would say that I would give 60% to my stocks, 20 to 25% to my leaps, and anywhere between 5 and 8% for my uh, weeklies. It's definitely based on how I feel, but it's also based on how much I'm up for the year. And, you know, we're going into the election. Once again, I've told you I'm a little bit reserved about that. So I'm going to be taking stuff off, continuing, as I said, to put money into SPACs as my cash reserve. Um, so that's kind of how I'm playing that. So coming off of that, um, let's just say you had $100,000, keep round numbers, Bubba Gummo coming out of Louisiana, I'll guess, <laughs> or somewhere along those lines, uh, had asked, what percentage do you use to hedge? I just want to say this fantastic question because a lot of people ask me, how do I hedge? And you really can't understand how I hedge without knowing what I'm hedging. So it depends. If I'm in stocks and I have 100000 and I'm probably not going to hedge that much. You know, like worst case, I'm going to go down 20 25%. At the same time, I can write cover calls and make 3 or 5% a week. So in five weeks, I'm break even. That's fine. But if I'm in $100,000 in leaps, all right, well, that's a problem because if the market crashes like hell, I want to be protected. And you know, the thing is, leaps have a ton of time. It's not infinite time. And those option values can crater very, very quickly. And if they don't come back in the time that you have for the expiration date, you're basically buying weeklies and you're screwed. So if I'm in options, and this is what I usually only hedge. I don't really hedge my stocks. I hedge the overall market as a proxy to hedge my stocks, because you know I don't know which specific one's going to go down. I don't want to waste money on stuff that's going to keep running or that's going to stall or that's going to erode my premium. As I said, I don't want to waste too much money in my hedge. It's one of my rules. But if it's all options, for instance, I'm going to hedge probably five to ten percent of that through weeklies, and that's like if the market's exploded a ton. Because let's say you know if the market keeps running, those leaps will go ten, twenty, thirty percent a day. That's fine if I waste five k hedging. If the market's like stalling flat, hasn't really done much for a while, maybe I'm predicting a breakout is going to happen. So I would probably hedge not as much. I'd probably hedge 2 to 3%. Using weeklies, of course, maybe 4% max. Because the thing is, if those portfolios crashes to zero and the stocks are all down 50%, like in March, those weeklies will cover the vast majority of what you've got in terms of leaps. So I like to be agile, be able to sell things that I don't really want to hold anymore. But I always, always stay hedged. So Stock Tendies asks, what's the rule you have about letting those winners run? So I'm thinking just Avi Injection here, Mercado Libre. That one's just ripping, obviously, up 60 points today on Monday. When do you say, all right, enough's enough, fuck it, let me take these winnings? Or do you just keep letting them run? I think that's a big question everyone's yeah, probably asking. Absolutely. I mean, and a lot of people are like, well, you got into Fastly at 22. What are you going to do there? You got into LVGO at 25. What are you going to do there? 
So, I mean, that's the thing. If I love a company and I think that it's just getting started, I'm not going to sell. I'm really not going to sell until I see that the growth is slowing down, until I see that the margins are not as good, until I see them stop putting money into research and development, which I think we talked about this in podcast too, about how I identify which stocks I like. So, you know, if you want to hear more about my exact you know method for picking a stock, go to that one. Um, but in terms of those little ones that are smaller market cap, they can become those huge market cap stocks. And I'd rather lose that position then lose out on the 10 times I could make or 20, 30, 50, you know, Amazon 10,000, whatever it is times when it IPO'd from the lows. So, I mean, I don't really want to get out of those things, but if it's something like Mealy or shop or even Tesla, you know, Tesla now is a high market cap. I'm not going to sell because it's, even though it's running like crazy, I'm in from really, really low and I love the company. So I'm, I don't mind breaking a rule there, but with, you know, something like shop or Mealy, I always take gains because I'm usually not in those with a lot of stock. I'll play those because they're big movers with long-term options. And what I'll do is usually multiple strikes because one thing I learned is if I only have one strike, sometimes I can do the the click and done and I'm out and then I'm like, man, I need, I'm going to chase it. Or, you know, if it drops, I'll buy way too much on the first drop and I'll end up getting hammered. If I would have just kept my, my normal position, I would have been fine. So what I do now, and this is why I did pretty well in the last week, even though a lot of my positions went down 20% and that's like completely fine with the amount of risk I take on. Um, especially if I'm having 10% days left and right, that that's okay with me. You're not going to get those returns without a little bit of risk. So what I do there is, let's say shop ran from 700 to 1100 almost. I took off half my leaps. I didn't buy stock yet because I figured you know, there might be a pullback. And the same with Mealy. I, I want to sell those options that have that limited amount of time, even though it's a lot of time because I always buy longer term. And then when it drops, you can always get back in. But if you make a substantial gain on something, and also looking at the rest of your portfolio, if you've got these other growth stocks that can run in tandem with these momentum, big price stocks, then you, you, you can stay balanced. You can sell out of the bigger ones that have run a ton, you know, shop 400 points, Mealy 700 points, Tesla 900 points. You can sell your long-term options on that, hold some of that capital, take that gain because nothing goes up forever and you can always get back in. The shorter term ones, a little harder because those can move so much more violently. And I think it's a disadvantage to people to get out of those. I would rather be comfortable with the position size I have and have money on the side to buy in case it drops a significant amount. All right. Next question we got from a Abo Pond. Uh, I'm just reading through this. Probably should have asked this uh, a few weeks ago, but please talk about the best way to save on taxes while day trading. So this will be for 2021 purposes here. <laughs> Unless uh, you got the extension. Yeah, course. which I actually did. Yeah. Me, me too, me too. <laughs> you got to. Uh, better to trade from an IRA, 401k, or regular trading account for the best tax benefits at the end of the year. Yeah, so I mean, this is a huge... I, I, I have this issue with a lot of people who say, man, I hate that I have to pay taxes. If you made a ton of money in the market and you have to pay a bunch of taxes... That's a good thing. You know, taxes are not your friend, but they really are in the market. It means you did a great job. So what I would say is it depends on your goals and depends on what you want to, you know, be trading. If you want to be trading stocks long-term and you want to hold them for a while, maybe 10, 20, 30 years, yeah, get yourself a Roth IRA. You can do a lot with that. You can use it towards your first home buy, medical expenses, this and that. So that's pretty huge. And you can take it out at a pretty appropriate time for your retirement, I would say. So that's like something I would do for long-term gains. If you're playing options, you know, if you make half a million dollars trading, quarter million dollars, hundred thousand, ten thousand, whatever it is, like whatever tax you're going to pay on that, that's you're going to be okay with that. You just got to make sure you put it aside. 
Do you not um, like, like roads, dude? <laughs> Do you not like education? No, nah, I'm just kidding. I'm a big I also, municipality guy. Not a, not a big uh, tax guy myself. Uh, get yourself a Jewish accountant. <laughs> You'll be set. Big CPAs are huge, too. Like, pay the money for a good CPA. They can write off almost anything. Everyone wants to know, you made this massive hot take. The SPX is at 32.50, I believe. Yep, 32.50 yeah. right now. 51 to be exact. D. Mitchter is saying SPX 3,400, how soon? And then he even writes LOL. So <laughs> <laughs> go for that one. I don't know if it's funny yeah. or if it's about to get rich. Who knows? I mean, but here's the thing. Like this level, I'm pretty sure 32, uh, 59, 58 break. So 32.61, just to be sure. That's a pretty huge level. If we break over that, there's an 80-point gap. There's always this potential, as I said, you know, you look at a horizontal line, that's a huge resistance. So they could pop it over and then dump it on us. So, I mean, this is where I was bullish up until this point, because that's where there's this huge gap from the first coronavirus crash in March. You want to be careful here. You make a ton of money. That's great. You know, take some, take some money off. Uh, Make sure to hedge too, if we get into that gap, because too many times I've seen that gap reversal happen. And it's pretty scary to think Google did the same thing. Google had that huge gap reversal. A bunch of other stocks did that too. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it's a definitely a possibility. So if we can clear that gap, if we can at least get more than halfway and close into that gap for like a day or two, probably two days to be safe, maybe three to be super safe, then we're going to SPX 3400 like in a week or two. Like that's the, that is the, there is, there's air above that. It's really nothing. Like just getting through that gap, even though the gap is, you know, air, that's why there's a gap there. There's nothing just traded in between it. But psychologically, now there's been a lot of trading that's happened in the last six months. That's a huge gap. So you want to be careful. But I think if we can clear that gap, we're going to have a really nice rally up to 3,400. Then the 3,400 test. And here's the next question from ROTEMC20. says, what's my plan after SPX 3,400? It depends on when that happens, right? So if we don't get to 3,400 before like September, here's the thing. Like I think the debates is going to be when I'm going to be in my calm, risk-off, covered call, SPAC cash mode. You know, I probably won't have leaps going into the election because you can always determine the reaction of a big event, like a huge event. You have no idea what's going to happen. Biden could win. Trump could win again. If Trump wins again, the market's going to rally. If Biden wins, the market's going to sell off. But once the debates happen, then you really see like the head-to-head battle. So that's September 29th. I'm going to be in that risk-off. It's still long, of course, but not with the same kind of risk. Having long with options is far, far, far more risk on than just being long with stocks and SPACs. So that's what my plan is. It just all depends on the timing. If we get there, if we break 3,400 in two weeks, then 3,600 comes. 3,650, 3,874 is what I like chart, charted out and predicted. So that can happen fast if we break 3,400. I mean, look, look what happened at the NASDAQ. I know tech obviously moves a lot faster, but tech is also in the S&P 500. It's a big, big part of it, a huge part of it. Those big five names are like 25%, as I said, 10 times in here. It's just, I need to hammer that home because people think the S&P 500 doesn't really move like the NASDAQ, but it's a big part of the same components. So if we get to 3,400 soon, I would think 3,600 comes. And then before the election, September 29th, uh, when the debates start happening, I want to be out before the middle of September and not like out as in all my stocks. I'm going to hold my long-term stocks through whatever happens and I'll just hedge the stocks as I hedge everything else, but I will take off that options risk just in case things go bad. Let me ask the question again. 
what's your actual plan after SPX 3400? Are we doing yachts? Are we, are we going to Costa Rica? Oh, what's yeah, the no. actual plan here? Peak life <laughs> yacht party in Miami. <laughs> 1000%. We'll be out there like Jay-Z, UGK, Big Pimp, and popping bottles of Cristal. It comes this time in the show where it's almost like the, the podcast condom, aka it is time to wrap things up. So, uh, Tony, let me kick it over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, honestly, thank you guys so much for just continuing to listen to this. Like, it's, it's insane to me that 84% of everyone who tunes into Pounding the Table stays till the time the table's broken at the end. So, big thanks to everyone there for listening all the way through. Also, thanks to six, 7,000 people who have already downloaded and listened to our podcast. That's, like, amazing. Thank you guys so much. And thanks to everyone who provides these questions. A huge part of our segment and all the ideas we'll continue to add different things you know you guys give your comments and the different ideas you have and we're happy to incorporate that in any other future episodes um, and we'll we're going to keep doing this until the table continues to break and you know every time we break a table we'll just order another one from ikea so happy to break a thousand tables to make you guys happy thanks for listening guys have a great trading week